0: Uh, This morning, we want to look into Exodus chapter 7 as we continue our study on the life of Moses. And if you have a bulletin, you should have an outline inside of it. And then there are the complete manuscripts that are, I think, in a blue cover this week. And um, they are at the exits. You can get one now if you'd like. And then all of those are on the church website as well. I want to read Exodus chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst." So Moses and Aaron did did it as the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, also the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water, and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile, and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that's in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die And the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their streams, over their pools, over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone." So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Sometimes I think that we fail to remember the mighty power of God that is required to deliver souls from Satan's domain of darkness to save people. We receive training on how to present the gospel effectively, and uh, I think for the most part such training is very helpful. I would argue that every Christian should be able to give a simple gospel presentation with the appropriate Bible verses. And I think every Christian should be prepared to answer common questions and objections that unbelievers raise. And I've given some messages on that in the past here. Um, But, you know, even after good training, seeing lost people repent and, and believe the gospel... Does not depend on our methods, it does not depend on our salesmanship ability, our our ability to persuade other people when we present the gospel, but saving a soul from God's judgment requires nothing less than the mighty power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter one or In Ephesians chapter 2, he says that God must impart new life to those who are dead in their sins. And if God does not do that, you know, you can get sometimes people, I've had this happen, they pray the sinner's prayer with me, or they profess to believe in Christ, but if God doesn't impart new life to them as a walking spiritual corpse, That wasn't genuine conversion. They did not truly have their hearts changed by God's power. And salvation, then, is not a matter of someone walking an aisle or someone making a decision to invite Jesus into his heart. The question is, did God give them new life? Were they born again by the Spirit of God? And that depends on God's mighty power to save And we are the instruments through whom God does that. Now, Exodus chapter 7 reports the beginning of what will be 10 miraculous plagues that God brought on Egypt in order to deliver the uh, children of Israel from bondage and slavery there after centuries of being there. And, of course, it was a literal story of how God delivered people from literal bondage uh, to this evil tyrant. But, um, as such, also, the New Testament sees it as the great picture in the Old Testament of redemption or salvation, of God imparting new life to us who are in Christ. And so, as that the lesson for us is then that delivering people from bondage to sin is God's work and it's dependent on His power over the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realm. Scholars will point out that the first nine plagues fall into three cycles of three. uh, And they get worse each cycle the um, plague grows in intensity. The first plague in each set has a purpose clause where God states his rationale and aim for the plague and uh, I might add that the last of each set the third, the uh, sixth and the ninth come without any warning they just happen God tells Moses do it without warning Pharaoh. Uh, The overall purpose for the plagues is given in verse 5 of our text. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and I bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And so God's purpose here is to show His supreme power over all spiritual forces, to exalt His name, over all the earth, and of course he wants to show his people Israel, that he is indeed the Lord. Now some scholars, and I think they're right, argue that these plagues directly confronted the gods of Egypt. Uh, For example, uh, the Egyptians had a god of the Nile, and the very first plague, turning the Nile into blood, shows God is sovereign over the God of the Nile, the false god of the Nile that Egypt worshipped. As you know too, Egypt worshipped the sun god and the ninth plague of plunging the land into darkness. God, God was thumbing his nose, so to speak, at the god of the sun saying, I made the sun and I control the sun and it will be light or dark by my word. And There were different gods that had different functions, such as gods of fertility, gods over crops, gods over storms, uh, gods over health, and as we'll see next time, many of those um, gods were defeated by these various plagues. The overall point of the plagues, however, is to show the superiority of the one true God over Egypt's many gods— and their idols, and to show his power over Pharaoh, who, as I mentioned earlier in an earlier message, Pharaoh thought he was a god. And the Lord here is clearly putting Pharaoh in his place. Um, Some scholars also will argue that all of these plagues can be explained as natural catastrophes. For example, the one we're going to look at here of turning the Nile to blood, the scholars will say that every year when the Nile is at flood stage, if you've ever been in the Grand Canyon, you've seen this, when there's a flash flood, the the water turns red because all the red sediment is washing down into the stream or the river. And um, so they will say that that's what made it look like blood And also there is a type of algae that comes from the lower Nile, some of the swamps, or the upper Nile, I should say, that produces stench and can kill the fish uh, from lack of oxygen. So some scholars, even some evangelical scholars, argue that that's what happened. In my estimation, that doesn't explain what's going on here, because clearly When Aaron lifts up his rod or staff over the river, instantly it becomes blood. And it doesn't say the river looked like blood. It says the river became blood. And so I believe that while a lot of these um, plagues will use natural phenomenon next week, the frogs and the bugs and all of that, Uh, It was miraculous in that they happened at the word of Moses and Aaron, of God through Moses and Aaron. And I believe his miraculous power is on display through them. And that should not be a problem unless a person has a problem with miracles. And if they have a problem with miracles, they have a problem with God. (laughs) Because God is the one who spoke the universe into existence by a miracle. So... Just two main lessons for us this morning with some points under each one. But the first one is then that delivering people from bondage to sin is God's work. And as you read this chapter from the opening verses, it's very clear, God is the one in charge here. God is in charge. He, is, he first appeared to Moses back at the burning bush in chapter 3, commissioned Moses to return to Egypt and deliver his people. Um, Moses became discouraged, as we saw um, last time, by various initial setbacks. The Lord, at the end of chapter 6, again appears to Moses or speaks to him and tells him, uh, I want you to go back and uh, speak to Pharaoh, and I'm going to uh, deliver my people. And then, all throughout the text, the Lord announces beforehand This is going to happen. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to turn the staff into a snake. I'm going to turn the river into blood. And we read repeatedly that God did just as He said. Um, And that is uh, in verse 13, for example. uh, As the Lord had said. In verse 22, as the Lord had said. The same phrase will occur in chapter 8 and chapter 9 several times as well. So God is the one doing this. Moses and Aaron are simply his instruments to carry out that. And the Lord says in verse 1 to Moses, I'm going to make you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. Now, of course, Moses wasn't God to Pharaoh, he is as God. Um, but he was a type, I believe, of the one who would come as God and man to deliver uh, us, his people, save us from our sins. And you know, God has always used human instruments to accomplish his plans. And uh, since Pharaoh viewed himself as a God, I believe God is showing Pharaoh, uh, you don't even come close, pal. I am God, and God is working through his chosen people. Now, three lessons here, then, about how God delivers people from bondage to sin, and I'm just touching on the first one already, and that is God always uses inadequate servants who know him to be the instrument of delivering others. These uh, miraculous events occur Right after, at the end of chapter 6, Moses says, I am unskilled in speech. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Uh, And uh, then, you know, right in verse 7, it mentions, kind of out of the blue, Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83. And as I chewed on, why does it do that? I think it's to tell us these guys were not adequate in themselves. They were old men past their prime, and God picked them, and God is going to use them in this mighty work. Just picture the scene for a minute. You've got two old guys, 80 and 83. One of them probably, Moses, was still in his shepherd's clothing, so they weren't dressed up like the Egyptians, and they come walking in with their staff, and there's nothing at all impressive about their appearance. Moses maybe stuttered or couldn't even speak. He would whisper to Aaron, and Aaron would speak to Pharaoh. And here is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in all of his splendor, with his, you know, opulent palace, all of his robes, his attendants around him, all dressed impeccably, his soldiers with their full armor. Moses and Aaron had no weapons. And they come in to talk to this mighty, Ruler Pharaoh, and they had to trust in God's supernatural power. And so they let Pharaoh know in verse 16 that they didn't come on their own, but rather that the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, had sent them. And um, then for the first, before the first plague, uh, the Lord directs Moses and Aaron to throw Aaron's staff on the ground where it's going to become a snake. And then Pharaoh calls in his magicians who are able to duplicate that trick, and I'll say more on that in a moment, but the point is God's superiority over Pharaoh and his magicians is seen when Aaron's staff that becomes a snake swallows Pharaoh's servants' staff, staffs that became snakes. And so God just uses this common shepherd's staff to swallow the staff of Pharaoh's powerful magicians. But that whole thing just reminds me, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, of how God's saving the world with the gospel is really kind of an inefficient process. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, God could have fulfilled the Great Commission in a matter of weeks if He had simply sent out His angels and told them, go to every people group on the face of the earth with the message of the cross and uh, tell them about Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. They wouldn't have had to spend years learning difficult languages. Uh, They wouldn't have needed to raise any support to go. Uh, they wouldn't have had to worry about persecution because if somebody opposed him, they either could have struck him dumb or dead, you know, with their power. They wouldn't have had to learn cultural things and how do I communicate in this culture in a way that they will understand and all those problems that missionaries today face. And just in a matter of days, the whole job would have been done. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still working on it. There are still many, many thousands of people groups that have no viable witness of Christ. But the fact is, just as God chose Abraham's often disobedient, often faithless descendants to be his channel of blessing to the nations, so Christ chose his church to be the ones to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And each of us, though we may, like Moses, protest and say, Lord, I am not an evangelist. And I would say that of myself. I am unskilled in speech. I don't know how I can overcome the powerful Egyptians. But God says, go. And I think the gospel is a lot like Moses' staff. It is powerful to save sinners. You know, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And the Lord promised Moses, I'm going to be with you when you go, as we've seen in earlier chapters, and that's his promise to us. Lo, I'm with you always as you go. A second lesson here, then, is that God's servants must faithfully and obediently deliver God's message And not their own message. In Moses' case, um, because of his faithless protest, I can't speak. God condescended and said, all right, Aaron will be your spokesman uh, to Pharaoh. But still, they weren't free to come up with their own feel-good message. Uh, In verse 2, notice, God says to Moses, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. That wasn't a message that Pharaoh was amenable to hearing. You know, that wasn't what he wanted to hear. Um, But it was the very word of God that he needed to hear. And so as difficult as it would have been for these two old men who, as I said, had nothing impressive about them to get them on Pharaoh's good side... As difficult as it would have been to go before this powerful monarch and say, Thus says the Lord, they did it. Uh, Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. Um, And then again in verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. Also, when Aaron, in obedience to God's command, threw down his staff that became a serpent, he was really directly challenging and demeaning Pharaoh's authority. Uh, As we've seen in an earlier message, the cobra was a symbol of uh, Pharaoh and his authority. It was on his headdress, right in the center of it. And the Egyptians even had a temple for the snake god. And so when Aaron throws down his staff in front of Pharaoh and it becomes a snake, as Philip Ryken explains, he says, he was taking a symbol of the king's majesty and making it crawl in the dust. This was a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty. Indeed, it was an attack on Egypt's entire belief system. And then Dr. Ryken applies this. He says one of the best ways to convince people of their need for Christ is to find out what they're counting on and then show them why it cannot be trusted. For example, many people, I found most people, trust in their good works. I mean, they think, hey, I, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not a child molester, I'm good, I, you know, I'll get in based on my good works. And, you know, you have to ask a person like that, uh, tell me, how many good works do you need to stand before God who is perfect in holiness? You know, when, when are you going to tip the scale? And how are your good works going to atone for all your sins? Because you've got to admit, maybe you're not the worst sinner on the world in the world, but you've got a pile, and you can work your way through the commandments and, Find out, you know, have you ever been angry? God says you murdered. You ever lusted? God says you've committed adultery. You can go right on down through all of them and uh, show them that, you know, even Mother Teresa could not get into heaven by her good works. And the Bible says in Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And then there are other people they're trusting in their money. They think money's going to buy them happiness and a good life and show them just, that's totally ridiculous. Money is fleeting. Uh, Riches are insecure, even for the super rich. And it doesn't bring them happiness. You know, our rich president's on his third wife and his son just is going through a divorce. Uh, the, The wealthy are not, happy people because of their money and there are people who are living for the good life and pleasure and again just show them that's so vain because one accident, one illness and all that is gone. It is totally untrustworthy to trust in that stuff. Um, Jesus you know told the story of the rich man who built bigger barns you know I'm going to store up all my stuff and then the punchline of that story in Luke 12:20 is God says to him you fool this very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared That's the issue. You know, we have many false prophets today who are proclaiming a feel-good gospel that is not a gospel at all to people. They tell people they're wonderful. They tell people God loves them. But they never confront sin. And they never preach the cross. And the Bible is so clear that these false prophets are healing the brokenness of people superficially like the prophets in Jeremiah's day who said to people, peace, peace. And God said, there's no peace because they did not proclaim God's way Of reconciliation. And God's only way of peace is when you recognize I am a guilty sinner and you come to the only provision God made, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, shed on the cross, and you lay hold of that as your only hope. Now, that's not a popular message even in our day. People attack the cross, but it's the only one we have to proclaim. And so, we have to be faithful in giving the true gospel to people uh, when we tell them of their need for Christ. So, God uses us inadequate servants to deliver those who are still in darkness, and we have to deliver His message, not our own. The third truth here is that God's purpose in delivering people is primarily His glory, And only secondarily, their happiness. Um, God, in verse 3, declares his purpose for hardening Pharaoh's heart. He says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And then he adds in verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And then when Moses and Aaron directly confront Pharaoh before the first plague, uh, God tells them to say in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Now when it comes to Pharaoh, I think it's very clear God's purpose was not to save Pharaoh. Uh, It was to harden Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't come to a saving knowledge, but rather God would be glorified through Pharaoh's defeat. Uh, Paul says that in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, when he quotes from Exodus 9, he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. And then Paul's conclusion in the next verse is, So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, with regard to the Egyptians, Dr. Kaiser suggests that some of them may have become believers through the plagues, because in chapter 12, uh, there is a mixed multitude that leaves Egypt With Israel, to go out into the wilderness. Uh, It may well be Egyptians who had believed, but the point is, and Paul goes on to make this point in Romans chapter 9, as the divine potter, God has the right to make some, he says, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and others vessels of mercy prepared for glory. And the fact is, the same gospel that softens the hearts of some hardens the hearts of others, and you've probably seen that. I certainly have. Um, But the Bible shows God is going to be glorified both in judging the wicked and in saving His chosen people. And uh, so the gospel brings temporal and eternal joy to those of us who are saved, but that's not the main point. The main point is God is glorified in His dealings with lost sinners, either in saving them or in judging them, and our happiness is secondary because God is central. We are not central, and so it should glorify Him. And so, because delivering people from bondage to sin is God's work, it follows, and this is our second main point that delivering people from bondage to sin is a spiritual battle, and it depends on God's power over the forces of darkness. I just want to touch on four lessons here. The first one is that Satan's power sometimes seems comparable to God's power, but it never is. Pharaoh asked for a miracle to show God's power And when Aaron delivers that miracle, throwing down his snake, Satan calls in his magicians, I mean, Pharaoh calls in his magicians, who by Satan's power, I believe, uh, pull off the same thing. And then Pharaoh just blows it off. Nah, no big deal. And you know, unbelievers do the same thing. Often they'll ask you for some sort of proof of the gospel. And you can give them evidence for the resurrection and they blow it off and go on their own way. And Jesus explains it's because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Um, but they, they turn this st- uh, staff into a serpent. And I'm guessing Moses and Aaron were a little taken aback when Pharaoh's magicians could do the same thing. And then later when they could also uh, turn the Nile into blood or water into blood. And then we'll see in chapter 8, the magicians were able to call forth frogs uh, on the land. I think it was demonic power. And although some scholars disagree with me on this, I believe that God, with his permission, grants Satan miraculous power at times to do signs and wonders. For example... In the story of Job, um, Satan's on a leash, but God gives him permission. And he sends lightning, it's a pretty impressive power, to destroy all of Job's shepherds and flocks. And then Job's children are gathered together for a birthday party or something in one home. Satan sends a tornado that destroys the home and kills all of Job's children. And then, with God's permission... He struck Job with painful boils. Uh, Those are miraculous things. And Jesus warned about false prophets in the end times who are going to show great signs and wonders. And in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is going to be able also to deceive many through signs and false wonders. So don't believe everyone who is maybe doing miracles. Uh, The message has to be the gospel. And if it's not the gospel, they're false signs and wonders that they are performing. Also, note that Satan's power is always subject to and inferior to God's power. The magicians could turn the Nile into blood and next time in chapter 8 bring frogs. They couldn't turn the Nile into water and get rid of the frogs. Uh, God's servants had to do that. And later, they couldn't even do the other plagues. They finally said, that's the finger of God. And so, Satan is always a counterfeiter. He disguises himself, Paul says, as an angel of light, and his servants as servants of righteousness, so that they deceive many, just as counterfeiters fake out many people before they are caught. But in God's timing, the book of Revelation shows Satan will be totally defeated. A second lesson here is that miracles then confirm the faith of believers, but they harden the hearts of proud skeptics. Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel, we saw in chapter 5, were or at the end of chapter 4, they had their faith confirmed by the miracles, the signs that God gave Moses to do. Skeptics will often sneer, show me a miracle and then I'll believe they won't. You could do a miracle right in front of them and they'll explain it away. In fact, Jesus' critics often asked him for a sign and here was his answer in Matthew sixteen four. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he was referring to his resurrection on the third day from the grave. But The Lord is not in the miracle business of impressing skeptics with miracles to uh, get them to believe. Because the Lord, in fact, has given us substantial eyewitness testimony to the greatest miracle that has ever happened in the history of the world. And that is the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And skeptics will dispute it and shrug it off again because they love their sin. But if they don't believe that evidence, they wouldn't believe a miracle done right in front of their eyes because impressive miracles are not the antidote for unbelief. Pharaoh saw a bunch of them here. He's going to see ten of them before Moses is done. And he still had his heart hardened. So, miracles can confirm our faith as believers to say, <clears throat> there was evidence here, I believe it's true because God is true, but they only increase judgment for proud skeptics who refuse to believe. A third lesson here then is that when evil leaders persist in their opposition to God, uh, their people suffer under them. Egypt's gods had failed them, and so for a week, we read in verse 24, the Egyptians had to dig around the sand and the Nile to try to find potable water. Um, And Pharaoh didn't want to release the Hebrew slaves because he's trying to save the Egyptian economy. He ends up with the Egyptian economy in ruins because of all the plagues that God brings on Egypt. Their crops will be destroyed, their livestock... Uh, dies. Finally, everyone in Egypt who doesn't put the blood on the doorpost loses their firstborn sons. God ordains government authority for the protection and blessing of those under authority. But when government leaders are corrupt, as they are in many, many places, uh, that's satanic. Satan perverts authority to kill and destroy. Uh, Exhibit A, North Korea. Um, Just the horrible horror as Kim Jong un lives in luxury and his people are literally starving to death and and, in concentration camps because they uh, believe in Jesus. And so God's authority then is perverted by the enemy. Same thing in in spiritual authority. God ordains elders over local churches and husbands over families for their protection and blessing. But when they abuse that power or that authority, those under them suffer. And we've all heard horror stories of abusive churches, abusive marriages, um, wives and children who suffer, And it is really a tragedy uh, when that happens. And how Satan uses that is to pervert the whole concept of authority because then you have anarchy. And so by abusive authority, Satan holds that up. See, there's where authority takes you and undermines the concept of godly authority that is to protect and bless people. Uh, So... Satan's power then sometimes seems comparable to God's power. It never is. Miracles are used to confirm the faith of believers but to uh, harden the hearts of skeptics. And then when evil rulers misuse authority, people under them suffer. The final lesson here is that to deliver people then from bondage to sin is a spiritual battle where God has to soften hearts. Four times... This chapter calls attention to Pharaoh's hard heart. Verse 3, again in verse 13, verse 14, and verse 22. Now, all sinners are born with spiritually hard hearts. Ephesians 4.18 says that because of Adam's sin. But the point is, unbelief is a matter of the heart. And in order to believe in Christ, God has to give a person a soft heart and grant repentance and faith to that person. In other language, God has to open deaf ears, as the miracles of Jesus did. He has to open blind eyes. Uh, You can't talk a blind person into seeing without miraculous power. Uh, He has to raise the dead, as He did with Lazarus. And again, you can talk to a corpse all day long, but unless God quickens that corpse, he, He will not come back to life, And so my point is simply that as we go out with the gospel, doing God's work, yes, get training, but don't trust your training, trust in God. God has to be the one who is working. And uh, he, people will not be delivered from Satan's strong grip on them in his domain of darkness unless God's mighty power is at work. So let me just conclude with two applications, and these are in the notes there. First of all, I believe you should get some training in how to present the gospel, but as I said, don't trust in your training, trust in the Lord. Um, You need to know how to present the gospel very clearly and succinctly, and there are three main parts of that. The first one is all people have sinned and need a Savior. Good verse on that, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Second point, um, God sent his eternal son Jesus to pay the penalty that sinners deserve. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then... Third point, we receive God's gift of eternal life uh, in Jesus Christ through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Um, If you're interested in training in evangelism, Uh, You could write that on the the connection card with your name and contact info and drop it in the offering plate and we could try to get a class together if that would be helpful. Uh, The second and final application is that since delivering people from bondage to sin is God's work dependent on His power, put on God's full armor and pray for opportunities and pray for boldness. There in Ephesians 6, where Paul tells us to put on the armor of God, he follows that with prayer, um, that we will be able to conquer these forces of darkness. In Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, here's his request. Pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, That's Paul asking for prayer, for boldness. Paul, who gets stoned and gets up and goes back and keeps preaching, saying, please pray that I'll be bold. And Paul, who writes the book of Romans, says, uh, you know, please pray that uh, I can make the gospel uh, clear. And then in, in verse Colossians 4 and verse 3, he says, Pray that God will open up for us a door to the Word so that He could preach the Gospel. And it's in that context, he says, that I can proclaim it clearly. Uh, if Paul needed prayer for boldness and clarity, certainly I do, and you do. So go forth in prayer, depending on the Lord. And my prayer is that God will use us his inadequate instruments at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship to see many in our city who don't know Jesus come to know him with saving faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I ask if any are here this morning who have never personally trusted in you, that you would open their blind eyes to see their need, to see the glory of Christ who died for sinners, that you would open their hearts so they could put their trust in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities and boldness and clarity to proclaim the good news that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners in our city. Pray for our missionaries, that they too would experience opportunities and boldness and clarity as they seek to communicate the gospel in very difficult situations and we will give you all the praise and glory in Jesus name. Amen.